This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. And I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. Ask the AMPs is where we try to address any and all maintenance questions that come our way. So if you have a question, reach out to us at podcasts at aopa.org. And if you like the show, subscribe on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to get on our email list for interesting weekly stories about GA maintenance and our monthly newsletter that links you to the latest maintenance articles, webinars, and other resources, simply text the word SAVVY, that's S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777, and we'll put you on the list. Again, text SAVVY to 33777 to get on our, our email list. Yeah, I'm about to uh, fly my airplane to the East Coast. On purpose? Yeah, on purpose. <laughs> and I, I I keep looking at the weather to see if it's going to be cooperative and get out of my way. There was some sort of a hurricane down in Mexico that was sending waves of moisture up through the Southwest. So... It's a dynamic situation, and I may have to uh, do some dynamic flight planning to, <laughs> to to get around it. My 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 origin and destination are fixed. All of, everything else along the way is is uh, is dynamically variable. Yeah. So while you're going east, I'll be going west to do classes in Tulsa again, which is lots of fun. Yeah, don't hit me going the other yeah. way, please. I'll be watching. I, be watching. Know, as he goes by. This is really bad timing because I was gonna I was gonna come visit you in Tennessee on the way to Virginia. Yeah. And it turns out you're not gonna be in Tennessee. Oh man. Speaking of almost hitting each other, I'm, you oh, probably <laughs> There's a you, segue for you. <laughs> you probably don't remember this, but many years ago, uh, we were both going into Oshkosh without planning our arrivals at all. You were doing your normal instrument approach into 2-7, and I was coming in from Ripon, and I was in my twin Comanche before it was painted, so it was all silver. You had to do a go-around. I don't remember why. And I see this 310 peeling away to the north as I'm going in to go on the north side to do the approach on 2-7, so going over the gravel pit. And... I could read the N number on your airplane, and I saw you in the cockpit. That's how close we were. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and we didn't plan the arrival. And I remember we talked about it that night at, uh, at Beckett's. And I thought, man, that would have been really bad. That would have yeah, been that bad. That would not have been good at all. <laughs> wow. 
Wow. We need to coordinate you guys better. Yeah, we're going we're going the wrong way. Yeah, directions. the uh, Oshkosh is one place where the big sky theory completely falls apart. <laughs> So our first question is from John, who is looking for trouble, or rather looking to stop it. Go ahead, John. Yeah, good explanation, Colin. <laughs> so my question is going to be replacing ancillary equipment around an old, but perfectly good engine. So to get to that question, though, I'd like to give you a little background on the airplane, first of all. I fly a 1973 Turbo 210L that is based in Seattle, Washington. I fly between 50 and 75 hours per year and do most of the maintenance, but it's always under the auspices of a qualified uh, AMP. And the airplane uh, frame has uh, 6,350 hours. It's got uh, 2,400 since a, a factory manufactured engine was put in. That engine was topped for some reason, I don't know why, at uh, 550 hours. So on the top engine, it's got 1,850. And I replaced uh, or rebuilt one cylinder 250 hours ago. So while the engine continues to run well, it's the ancillary equipment that continues uh, to trouble me. For example, 500 hours ago, the turbocharger was rebuilt. 300 hours ago, the Macaulay prop was replaced with the Harshell prop, and that wasn't always all because of maintenance. It was an older prop. Uh, two years ago, I had a small fuel leak and a hose. Last year, I placed the starter assembly. You know, the baffling looks like it uh, could use some work, but the CHTs are just fine. And the prop and the engines are showing some sag and would benefit from either shimming or some new engine mounts. So here's my question. I say to her, hate to start replacing items now that we'll just have to replace when we do the engine. But knowing that I have a high time engine, which types of things would you suggest that I proactively do to keep the plane safe and efficient? Can I ask first, in what year was the engine installed? And presumably, hopefully, all the hoses changed. That was probably um, between 2000 and 2005. Oh, gosh, this is like brand new. <laughs> yeah. That's why you guys were Kermit. <laughs> I think this whole idea of saying, of, of, of Thinking of the engine as a as a high time engine and being reluctant to change things that need to be changed it is not a good way of thinking. First of all, there's nothing that says you will ever have to overhaul that engine. Okay, that's not a requirement. And really, most likely, the only time you would ever overhaul that engine is uh, if if the cam goes bad. And, it, you know, if you're flying it regularly and you and you use cam guard and stuff, there's pretty good likelihood that, that the cam won't go bad. But that's really the most likely scenario of why you would want to tear down that engine. And that, you know, that might happen a long time from now. You know, I didn't split the case on one of the engines in my 310 until it was at Thirty-three hundred hours, and the other case has never been split, and I'm still trucking on that one. So, I wouldn't think of the engine as being in, you know, imminent risk of being torn down. It sounds like everything's in the green. It, you know, if the engine mounts are sagging, replace the engine mounts. The hoses, 
you know, if the hoses are, are over 20 years old and they're rubber hoses, it might be worth changing them. If they're Teflon hoses, I wouldn't worry about it. And if you are changing hoses, I, 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 I don't use anything but Teflon hoses in my airplane because they used to be known as lifetime hoses. I, I, I don't think that's quite accurate, but they, they, they go an awfully long time. And the only downside of Teflon hoses is they don't like to flex a great deal. So you wouldn't want to use them for, say, you know, hydraulic hoses in the landing gear or, or brake hoses that, that, that bend every time the, the, the oleos compress. Of course, on, on your 210, you only have one oleo and doesn't have any brakes on it. So that's not an issue. You know, I think John makes a good point, though. I mean, as we push people to push past TBO, they can't forget that some items are going to be wear items and should be addressed, even though the engine itself is going well past the the, the magic number of TBO, um, like the hoses, like the engine mounts. And all those things, if you can do it on condition, if you can look at the engine mounts and see them sagging, that's an obvious thing to do. Um, the hoses are a little harder to do on condition. We kind of just do them on schedule because we assume that they're going bad inside or we, we can't, you know, see inside. So we try to address them on a schedule. But you just don't want to forget these items that are extraneous to the engine that, as you say, are typically addressed when the engine comes out because it's a convenient time because the, the plane is down for an extended period and, and things are more accessible. So you're, you're thinking the right way. Yeah. And turbochargers are not are not expected to to go the life of the engine. Uh, according to Gary Main, the average uh, turbocharger overhaul period is around a thousand hours. I I've typically gotten about fifteen hundred hours out of out of mine because I'm sort of obsessive about TIT. But but the fact that you had to change the turbocharger is really not relevant to the engine longevity, and it's it's kind of expected. The magnetos obviously have to take really seriously. That's the the one thing that, because magnetos have so many failure modes, because they have all these f- fragile plastic parts in them, because they have consumable items in them like like carbon brushes and and felts that have to have you know be oiled and the oil dries up after a while, and condensers that whose electrolyte or I mean dielectric goes bad after ten years or so. We do need to take the 500-hour mag disassembly inspections, 500-hour inspections, pretty seriously. And that goes for for any engine. But it sure sounds like your engine is healthy and you're you're doing all the right stuff. If you start to see a valve that is starting to look a little wonky under the bore scope, uh, you usually can rescue it by by lapping it in place rather than waiting till it burns so badly that the cylinder will have to come off on the continental engines. We've had, we've seen a lot of, of uh, rotocoil failures. So if, if the valve starts looking a little strange, it may be because the it's, it's not rotating properly and changing the rotocoil is, is inexpensive and easy to do and, and not particularly invasive. So I have a couple other thoughts, too, as a 210 guy, which, by the way, it's really cool that a 210 guy calls. On your engine mounts, since you're turbo, you know, the front ones are a little different, especially the left front. The exhaust comes really close to it. So it's the one that usually wears first. But you can see these things and inspect them. 
You can, as you mentioned, shims. Uh, that's definitely doable. And there's a service letter. It's a very, very old one that allows you to put uh, shims under there, a shim, uh, about an eighth of an inch or so. And that'll lift the front of the engine and help it line up with the engine mount. And that's a real help. I would suggest since you have a the Sandcast engine, adding to uh, boroscoping the cylinders and looking for rust and exhaust valves and uh, fractured uh, rings and stuff like that. You can see all those things in the in the cylinders, but also you can run that boroscope right down the oil filler port and see the middle of the camshaft. You can see one exhaust uh, lobe and one intake lobe, which means you get to see three lifters. And that's a really good indicator of rust or whatever that's going on. Now, you're not gonna do much based on what you see. In other words, a, a, a cam that rusts and you know, down to nubs is not going to make the airplane fall out of the sky. But if you start seeing rust inside, especially on the lifters, you can proactively pull the lifters and inspect and replace them and often save the camshaft if there's any concern about the camshaft. And while you have those lifters off, you can see even more. But I wouldn't dive into that unless you borescope first. But the last thing that I would definitely do, because it gets missed so often, are the uh, two check valves related to the turbocharger. The inlet check valve is very robust and it can be taken apart and cleaned, inspected. Uh, you can even kind of polish up the seat and put that one right back together. Cessna wants you to replace these every thousand hours, but a good look at them is a great thing. And they're often ignored at overhaul, even at uh, turbocharger overhaul. The outlet, the one that returns the oil back to the scavenge pump, is um, very light duty and it will come apart. And if either one of these fails, it's gonna give you all sorts of trouble. We see uh, turbochargers replaced frequently because one of these check valves has failed and is just pumping oil at the turbo. And there's nothing wrong with the turbos, the check valves. So anyway, I would highly recommend if you don't see any record of those having been inspected, definitely at a minimum, have a look at those. And if the outlet one is the least bit worn, I would replace it in a heartbeat. They're not real expensive. If the turbocharge lets go, does it um, run the risk of uh, the engine ingesting any metal and damaging the engine? Or is it just a failure of the turbocharger? Not in the normal turbo failure. Normally, Gary Main would tell you all the things that happen, but what we've been seeing lately is they leak. They start eroding in the cast iron around the the mating surfaces, and they just start leaking. The turbo's running fine. Leaking uh, exhaust. Exhaust, yes. I'm sorry, yeah. leaking on the exhaust side. And seems to start happening, uh, well, on the, uh, on the Turbo Cirrus and on the Columbias in particular. We've seen a whole rash of them in the last couple of years. And we've just had to do a couple little tidbits, but I think you get a, a, an A on the report card, John. Yeah, and keep doing what you're doing, and don't and don't worry about your engine being old. It's it's uh, <laughs> it's old in the way that you know a good Cabernet is old. That's right. Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, hey, thank you very much. Uh, appreciate um, the uh, podcast, you guys, do all the time, and appreciate your commenting on my question. You bet. Thank thanks you for, for calling in, John. Yeah, thanks for the call. Yeah, bye bye. Bye. So our next question is from Ben, who's trying to keep time straight. Good to see you, Ben. What's up? 
Uh, hi, thanks for uh, taking my question. I enjoy the podcast. Uh, so I own a 96 Piper Saratoga, or a Cherokee Heavy, as I like to call it. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of years ago, before I bought it, luckily, the previous owner had a completely new panel done with beautiful Garmin avionics, which I love. And so my question is about the two types of hours that the uh, G500 TXI that's in their tracks and which one one uses to track what kinds of things. So it has flight hours and engine hours. And as far as I can tell, the plane was sold using flight hours as the total time since new on the airframe. Okay. But in the logs, the engine time since major overhaul was always computed as an offset, a fixed offset from the flight hours, from those flight hours, the same thing. It's become clear that engine hours rack up in that thing more quickly than the flight hours, especially on short flights. So I'm guessing one is sort of when the engine is running, probably the engine hours, and the other is either wheels up or above a certain RPM. And... To further complicate it, the shop, the avionics shop, transferred the mechanical tack, I believe, to the flight hours and the mechanical hobs, which is still present, to the engine hours. And those two, the mech hobs and the, and the engine hours, track very closely still. So I was just wondering, what is the best number to use? I'm thinking I had been, or the owner had been using the flight hours number to track the time since overhaul, magneto irons, oil changes. But I'm thinking that's not right, that I should be using the engine hours, which run more quickly. And I guess as a corollary, what good, what use is the uh, flight hours, except maybe for airframe time, although I imagine at some point the engine hours may overtake that number, and then it's kind of confusing. We're going to have fun with this one, I can tell yeah. <laughs> you, you, Does anybody think that Ben is overthinking this just yes, a little absolutely. bit? <laughs> Look, the, the, as I think you, uh, you know, the, the FARs are silent as far as what hours are used for what. They, they don't say anything. So it's you're at, at your discretion as to what you want to use for what. I have a very simple rule. <laughs> when you have multiple hours, always use the run that runs the slowest. That's right. Right. Unless you're renting the airplane to someone else, then you use yeah, the one that's the fastest. Yeah, then you want the one that runs the fastest. I mean, that's the only legitimate reason I know of that people keep track of both is that if they're renting the airplane out, they want to minimize their maintenance and maximize their revenue, which makes right. perfect sense. Sure. But at any rate, I, I would definitely work with the one that runs the slowest. And there's there's no law that says you can't switch horses in the middle. You don't ne necessarily need to be consistent <laughs> with what was done in the past prior to the avionics change. It does sound to me kind of like that the radio shop initialized them b backwards. I was about to say bass backwards. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> you and Colleen are, but I'm. But not. it but, but it would be easy enough to reverse that. But do whatever feels right to you but to me wh whichever one runs the slowest is the one i want to use for maintenance you can use your watch yeah yeah you can record for... your takeoff time your start engine time do all those things and so by it sounds like my engine hours is that oil pressure switch hob hours as far mm -hmm. as the garmin and so i'm not doing a disservice by you know the engine's running it ran for 50 hours time for an oil change the magneto was used for 500 hours at all time for a mag check yeah 
anybody, if, if anybody does maintenance within 20% of what the recommendation is, they're doing right. really good. good you know, enough, this is not yeah. an exact science. I mean, if you want to be conservative, you can be conservative and do the maintenance earlier, but, but it, we're just saying it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Too detailed. <laughs> okay. Good to know. I used to tell folks, you know, lighten up. It's okay. <laughs> as long as it keeps running. That's right. You're right, though. The, the FARs do say time and service. They don't say what kind of time. So, Or what kind of service. And if you look it up time and service in the definitions, it doesn't really say what they mean by that. Paul, we, the, the one thing we didn't mention is is that if you're flying fast enough, the, 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 the time slows down a little bit, too. That... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. Great question, Ben. Thanks for the fun. <laughs> Take care. Bye. So our next question is from Ricky, who says he's looking for an address, but we think there's a little more to it than that. Welcome, Ricky. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yes, I'm, I've got a 1967 uh, Piper Cherokee 1A. Just had the motor rebuilt, major overhaul, superior cylinders put on in April. And then I took it straight to Gulf Coast Avionics and had engine monitor put in it. After flying it, after I got it back, I tried to fly it the old way that I was taught. Take it up 2,500 RPMs, lean it back till it starts missing. And then go in with the uh, make it rich until it quits missing and gain about 50 RPMs and then set my throttle at about 2,500 RPMs. When I do that, or if I do that, my cylinder head temperatures go into the red. And red for, for the superior millennium cylinders that I have on this motor or the way Gulf Coast set them up is they go yellow at 410, go red at 420. And I'm wondering, am I, I don't want to mess my engine up. I'd like to run it where it should be run. There's what? so many, so many yeah. things to say about this. <laughs> I, I, it's hard to know where to start. <laughs> First of all, that, that is a really, really some really cool avionics that you put mm -hmm. in this Cherokee. Yes, this is, is like the world's yeah. most over-improved Cherokee now. <laughs> it's beautiful. But the official, well, a couple of things. First of all, the official red line on, on those cylinders is not 420. It should be 500. But I don't know why Gulf Code set it where they set it. But where they set it is actually pretty good. You know, our, you know, our recommendation on like homing engines is to try to limit cylinder head temperature to 420 maximum and 410 as a kind of a warning that you're getting close is really not bad. So although the avionics shop didn't set your instrument right, I'm not sure I would want to change it because it's right about where I would love to see it. It's only slightly illegal, but but the 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 other the well you know but that that <laughs> that, that 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 that's on Gulf Coast Avionics that's not that's not on on Ricky. <laughs> yeah, now I, I talked to Gulf Coast Avionics after they did it, and when it started going into the red, and they said well they mm -hmm. would have to have a letter from either Lycoming or from Superior 
given them the authority to take the uh, red and the yellow. Well, they, the no. they, they, they don't need a letter from anybody. All you need to do, if you, if you really wanted them to change it, which I don't particularly recommend you do, is just print out a copy of the type certificate data sheet on the engine because that will show where, where the red line is. And that you pull that off the web. But go to Google TCDS and you'll bring up the FAA T, uh, type certificate data sheet website, put in... PA 28-180, and it'll pop up the type certificate data sheet for the aircraft, or put in the the engine nomenclature, and it'll put up the pull up the type certificate data sheet for the for the Lycoming engine. But the other comment that I want to make before I forget is that the reason that your CHTs are are going into the red is because your leaning procedure is wrong. It was so close to right, except so for that close. last step. Yep. You know, you, you said you lean it to the onset of roughness, and, and then you rich in it until the roughness goes away. And if you stopped right there, you'd be perfect. But then you said you rich in it further to get a 50 RPM rise. Well, that puts you right where you don't want to be, right in what we call a red box. So that that's the reason that your CHTs are, are going too high is because the leaning procedure is uh, you're running it you're running it richer than it should be okay now that's the way i used to run it before i had any engine monitor in it only <laughs> the monitor i had before right. was one exhaust gas temperature right so, so so you have an excuse because the old way you didn't know you were doing something bad. we call now, that now, ignorance as bliss yes. yeah. <laughs> now you know some now now that you have all these fancy avionics you know that you're doing something bad so it's time to to fix your leaning procedure well, any help that I get, you know, to, to understand what I'm, what's going on with it, then, you know, I, I appreciate it because as long as I'm not hurting my motor and I can get better fuel economy out of it and run it a little bit cooler than what it, it used to run, because I read somewhere that aluminum cylinders, once they hit 400 degrees, have a tendency to lose 50% of their strength. Uh, not, I think it has to go higher than that. Yeah. Like 450 maybe, but 400 is not that bad. Yeah, and a Lycoming cylinder can handle the, the 420 as opposed to a Continental that we would say 400. Now, these are superior millennium cylinders. Right, but it's, it's, the, same, it's the same design. The superior millennium cylinder is, was developed by reverse engineering a Lycoming cylinder. It's yeah, the and same. so the superior has to meet all the same specs as the Lycoming because it's put on a Lycoming engine. So it doesn't get special temperature red lines because they're from Superior. They have to be able to meet the same 500-degree red line that the Lycoming cylinders had. And so the spec that the engine monitor correctly should be set to, to make it per the STC, is what's in the type certificate data sheet, which is the 500 degrees. 500 degrees. Now, interestingly enough, though, there is no factory yellow arc there is no there is no so, so the yellow arc can be anywhere anywhere you want it and where it is right now is is pretty good it's it 400 410 would be just a fine place to put the yellow um well, you make me the, feel good about about everything the, the official red line if the avionics guy configured it correctly the official red line should be 500 you can find that in the the Lycoming type certificate data sheet. It will say that, um, and you could provide that to them if you really want them to change it. Ricky, we appreciate the call. 
No, I appreciate all the information. At least I feel a lot better while I'm flying now than I did before. Wait. So, you know, if, if I do hit the yellow, then I'm not going to worry about it as much as I was worrying about it. You should feel better with that beautiful panel. That's oh, got yeah. That's pretty amazing awesome. information on it. Should The airplane must fly better. I'm jealous. <laughs> well, very cool. Enjoy that. Thank you very much. Y'all have a great day. All right, you too. Thanks, Ricky. Thanks. Our next question is from Jim, who is separating myth from reality with engine preheating. Go ahead, Jim. Thanks so much, guys, for having me on. I really like the podcast. So uh, I have an RB7A. I'm based in uh, New Jersey, actually at Sky Manor, New Jersey, which is about uh, 45 uh, miles west of New York City. Uh, not that damp of an area, but my concern is in the winter. I live about 40 minutes from the hangar, and uh, I have a, a, a in a hangar, and I have access to electricity. So I have a nice setup with an electric heater. I'll bring, uh, you know, warm air into the cowling. I have a, a couple blankets over it and uh, seems to work well. When I get in, I look, I flip uh, CHTs and everything to see the, the engine instruments. And I have anywhere from like, depending on the outside temperature, anywhere from 70 to 100 degrees in there. And, uh, you know, my buddies say, you know, because I usually leave it on because I want to right early in the morning, Saturday, you know, take off and do something. And it doesn't make sense for me to drive, uh, to turn it on or plug it in. And I know I can get a cell phone uh, adapter to electric. But besides that, my, the myth that I want to solve <laughs> is it, everyone tells me not to leave it on 24-7 during the winter because of the worry that the moisture will condense inside the cold engine, like the cold parts, and create issues. I feel that I'm heating the engine completely, that there will be no cold sections do you understand what I'm saying? And mm -hmm. Help yeah. me solve that myth. Uh, some years back, uh, Tannis did a study about this, and they, they wrote a pretty interesting white paper that was available on their website at one point. I wish I had captured it because it's, it's not there anymore. But basically, they, they did run some tests, and it did indicate that leaving the, the Tannis system on 24-7 would promote corrosion in certain parts of the engine. I know in Continentals, for example, it's usually the starter adapter shaft gear that, that winds up a massive rust. They also said in this white paper that if you also use an electric engine dehydrator that pumps dehydrated air into the crankcase and so it purges the engine of moisture, that then it's okay to leave the heater on all the time. The, the combination of a, uh, an engine dehydrator and the, the preheating system is pretty much solves the, the, the whole problem. Now, what they didn't really address in, in that white paper was the case you bring up, which is where you're using the preheating system, but you're also using a blanket and cowl plugs and so on to try to bring the entire contents of the of the engine compartment up to a, up to a constant temperature that that would obviously help with the problem but the dehydrator really helps a lot because every time you shut down an engine it's all full of moisture and, and the moisture is is a the byproduct of combustion when you combust 
petroleum, the primary results of that combustion are, are, are carbon dioxide and, and, and water. <laughs> and most of the water goes out the exhaust in the form of steam, but some of it blows by the rings and winds up into, in the crankcase when you shut down. There's nothing you can do about that. You know, if you pull the, the oil filler cap off after you shut the engine down, it's always dripping with moisture. And, and that's moisture that was generated by the engine itself in the course of, of, of running. So, again, the best thing you can do is to use the combination of an engine dehydrator. And nowadays, the dehydrators used to use desiccant crystals, and you can still get that kind, but there's also a unit out called a Black Max, which doesn't involve desiccant. It, it, it's kind of like a refrigeration unit, and it dries the air by cooling it down so that it can't hold moisture, and then uh, pumps it into the crankcase through a, a, a tube that you connect usually to the oil filler when the airplane's sitting in the hangar not flying. And uh, Jim, in uh, in Mike's book on engines, Mike actually says you can't go wrong leaving your system on 24-7 as long as you have the entire engine and prop kept at that temperature because condensation just can't occur. And the one, the reason why I bring this up, not to counter what Mike said, because he's adding some caveats, but he says you have to cowl both the engine and the prop because the prop is a big heat sink or cold sink, I guess. And so the, the, the heat will escape through the prop. So I'm not sure if you had a, a prop blankie for your airplane, but you might a consider blankie? that. A blankie? Can we say blankie? Well, well they, make, they, they, make, they make prop covers that slide cover. over the blades. I don't, you know. You knew what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> that makes total sense. I, I think the uh, idea of the prop is a good idea. But I think I'm going to do a combination of uh, things. Don't leave it on 24-7, but if I know I'm going flying, maybe go out you know, if, if, and turn it on overnight or something like that. Yeah, the day before is perfect. Thank you. That was a great question, and um, we appreciate you coming on and uh, calling us up. Thanks a lot, Jim. Enjoy. Okay, our next question is from Tom, who's trying to dig deeper into his tech. Welcome to the show, Tom. Uh, thanks for having me and uh, enjoy listening to these podcasts. I'm a CFI and consequently fly several different types of aircraft and curious about how the green arc on the tachometer is determined because some of the aircraft that I fly, the green arc is from 2300 to 2700, uh, where others are 1000 to 2500. Some people have described the bottom of the green arc as the minimum static RPM of the engine prop combination. However, that doesn't seem to make sense to me, as I'm pretty sure there's no airplanes out there that have a minimum static of 1,000 RPM. <laughs> so what is, how is the green arc determined? Well, Tom, you're absolutely right that it is not minimum static <laughs> minimum, RPM. Yeah. Whoever came up with that, I can't even imagine. It was probably another CFI, right? No, it wasn't, actually. <laughs> you know, we, we insulted CFIs earlier in the show, so obviously you weren't listening while you were uh, waiting, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> He's still talking to us. He's still um, talking to us. I suspect, you know, this, it's, it's, it's an interesting question because I haven't spent that much time staring at green arcs on tachometers to try to find a pattern. But if I'm working from first principles, my guess is, that the airplanes that have a green arc down to a thousand RPM are probably ones that have four cylinder engines. 
And the ones that don't go down that low are probably ones with six-cylinder engines. And and the reason I say that, and, and Colleen's sitting there racking her brain. I'm trying to uh, think. Where did he come <laughs> up with that? that? No, I'm trying to picture my uh, I have an here, idea. Tech, here's, yeah. here's the deal. Six-cylinder engines usually have harmonic dampeners, movable counterweights on the rear two throws of the crankshaft. Because a six-cylinder engine, the crank is so long that there's a significant torsional stress on the crankshaft from the power pulses that come from the rearmost cylinders, the ones that are farthest away from the propeller. And so they put harmonic dampeners on the crankshaft in order to absorb these power pulses and to reduce the torsional stress on the crankshaft. But the harmonic dampeners, which operate basically on the principle of resonance, only really operate well within a fairly narrow RPM band. And so on six-cylinder engines, the, 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 the green arc is probably trying to confine you to that band of RPMs where the harmonic dampeners are, are able to do their job. Uh. Now, to be honest with you, it, it probably isn't real important to stay within the green arc if you're operating at relatively low power because then you don't have a lot of stress on the crankshaft to begin with. The time that it's really important to stay within the green arc is when you're operating at high power. But typically when you're operating at at high power, your RPMs are gonna be pretty high anyway. So probably would automatically be in the green arc. Right, okay. Yeah, so the O300 uh, in the older 172s have uh, green arc um, on the ones that I've flown between 23 and 2700 RPM. Mm-hmm. But I have noticed that, for instance, a Cub, a J3 Cub with a 65 or even up to a, a 100 horsepower engines in them will have a, lo- a larger range of the green arc. It proves my point. O300 is a six-cylinder engine and the, mm-hmm. the, the Lycomies and the Cubs are four-cylinder engines. So I think I was on the right track maybe. And a lot of the four-cylinder engines, like on the Piper Arrow and the 200-horsepower Moonies, will also have a yellow arc, which is a harmonic problem area for them. Does your Cardinal have a yellow arc? It sure arc? does. Yeah. It does. The, and the, I can feel I, it. I think, yeah. I think the yellow arcs that, that, that you're talking about are typically not crankshaft things, but they're propeller resonance yeah, things. It's a prop, right. It's uh, propeller-engine engine combination resonance. issue. Yeah. Yeah, but you know the real reason why we have these colors is they come from the type certificate data sheet, right? And so the question he's asking is, how are those numbers set? But to know where where to find those numbers and how to paint your airspeed indicator, you reference the TCDS. Yeah, but I wonder what what the factory uses to decide this engine has a green arc from A I to B. I think that's what he's asking. Yeah, yeah, yeah I don't know. No, I yeah. thought I I thought I answered that. Uh, well, yeah, and you did. Are you, are, are you, are, Polly, you not satisfied with my answer? <laughs> I, your answer I was would, great, Mike. I would, your answer was stupendous. It was just spot I, on. I knew. I, I just saw the expression on Colleen's face. You know, when she's saying, "What's he going to say?" <laughs> no, no, not at all. No. Now the minimum static RPM that he was asking about. I looked it up. Uh, what the term means? Of course, and it you says, did. 
your engine should be able to reach approximately 80 to 85% of its rated red line RPM, and that is the minimum static RPM. And it's set for each engine to prevent overspeeding when you go to full throttle. But, so it's, not, it's, but it's not marked anywhere. On no, no, it's, it's not, not marked. marked anywhere. No. Yeah. So it definitely doesn't track to the, uh, the colors on your airspeed indicator. I mean, I'm sorry, on your RPM, on your tack. Okay, great. Does that I, I help? appreciate you taking the question. <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. We're we're gonna have to ponder that now. Yeah that that was that was an interesting question because I never actually wondered where you know how they established those colors. I figured just somebody got a paintbrush out and I've, I've done that. And, and that's all, <laughs> that's all good until you change the tachometer, and then the tachometer folks say, mm-hmm. "So where do you want the green arc?" Yeah. yeah, and I you're like, ah. I want it per the type certificate data sheet yeah. for see, what the POH says. Yeah, yeah. See, only a CFI would ask a question like that because he's he's got these students who says why. To yeah, that, that's know, right. right? <laughs> yeah, you're always and, explaining and, and, stuff, and, and he can't get away with saying because I said so. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, well, Tom, thank you very much for the question. That was very interesting. Thanks for uh, dialing in. Okay, thanks for having me. Yep, thanks, take care. Bye. Okay, our next question is from Tamara, a repeat offender. We advised him last October about a bad cylinder, and he has an update for us. Go ahead, Tamara. Okay, uh, thanks for having me again. So if you remember, you guys had advised me just to keep running that cylinder, which I did for a little while, and then I had another little clue that I can't remember exactly that made me feel like I needed to change the cylinder. So I ended up going and sending it out for overhaul. And I'm happy that I did because the exhaust valve was pretty much toast. So I've ran the new cylinder for about 20 hours without issue. And then that was the number one cylinder. Then the number three cylinder had like a catastrophic failure. Basically, the exhaust valve broke completely. The lobe end of it broke off like mid-shaft. And the piston just bashed it through the the cylinder head. Um, I sent some photos in. They're a little bit late, but you guys can take a look at that later. So basically the situation I'm in now is I have two cylinders that are freshly overhauled, two that have not been touched. Mike, you had put out a flyer a couple months ago about what to look for for bad exhaust valves, but none of those failure modes um, are the way mine failed, just mid-shaft like that. So I'm just curious for the other two cylinders, what should I be looking for and concerned about with the untouched cylinders? Well, unfortunately, I haven't seen the the photographs, but from your description, it sounds to me like the only plausible explanation was that, that you had a valve strike, which means that the valve stuck open and the piston came up and hit it and broke the valve stem. That's kind of messy in, in a lycoming because they're sodium film, filled valves so that liberates a bunch of, of metallic sodium which is really corrosive stuff if that valve stuck open then it sounds to me like that's usually an operational issue and it, it, it sounds to me like like your other cylinders might be in jeopardy of the same thing so this sounds like you ought to either do a wobble test on the other cylinders or you ought to just bite the bullet and have all of the exhaust valve guides reamed on that engine to clear out any any deposit buildup that 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 that's gotten in there, and that's something that does not require cylinder removal. 
rimming the, the guides, but it does require taking the valve train apart, removing the, the, the rocker and valve springs and stuff like that. Did you borescope these cylinders? Because I'm almost 100% sure that we would have started with borescope your cylinders. Yeah, so I have not yet, but I was. that's kind of what I was calling here for, is what do I look for when I boroscope? And it sounds like it's just going to be some kind of lead buildup, either on the valve or the valve guide. I don't know if I could be able to see it on the valve guide, but... Well, you can't see uh, a sticky valve in a boroscope. Well, you, you you can to some if they're really actually first of all if they look yeah. sticky when you're bore scoping it and turning the prop because if a sticky valve is sticky it's going to be the stickiest when the when the engine is cold which is what it is when you're bore scoping but also if you rotate the prop so that the exhaust valve is fully open you can normally get to see at least part of the valve stem uh, with the bore scope and and see whether there looks like there's an awful lot of buildup of of exhaust deposits on the stem or whether the stem is relatively clean. Lycoming recommends doing something called a wobble test, which involves removing the valve springs and then using a, a dial gauge to measure how much you can wobble the, the valve stem. And there's a range of acceptable wobble. <laughs> and if it doesn't if it wobbles less than then the minimum acceptable it means that the valve is is in jeopardy of sticking and if it valve wobbles too much it means that the guide is worn out that's service bulletin 388 by the way but 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 paul usually doesn't bother with the wobble test he just he just reams the valve guides unconditionally yeah. Well, you're there. You're halfway there. You you're, might as well yeah, just you're get already the there, and you run a reamer through it, the 499, whatever reamer for those valves. You don't take out any metal. All you take out is the crusty gunk that's in the guide. It's a technical term. Yeah. It's a highly technical. But it, it sounds to me like, like Tamer committed a cardinal sin, which was <laughs> removing a cylinder without borescoping it first. We don't ever want to see anybody ever do that. What's your address? We're going to send you a borescope. Yes. <laughs> well, you guys are going to hate me because I do have a borescope. Oh, no. Oh, no. And you didn't use it. Oh. oh well, goodness. I had kind of peeked around in there and it was kind of hard to, to tell. But uh, the follow-up question I had then, so reaming the valve this is, guide. This is like, this is like doing open heart surgery without first taking an x-ray, you know. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> or an electrocardiogram <laughs> or something yeah or echo echocardiogram. Yeah. Yeah. echo yeah so but, reaming the valve guide cleans up the valve guide if there's anything built up on the valve is the only solution there to pull the cylinder and replace the valve then yeah but that's what's on the valve is down toward the bottom of the stem and uh that's just going to wear the the valve guide it's going to make it bell mouth at the bottom or just opens at the bottom, and it'll usually open at the top as well, so the valve now wobbles and doesn't fit in the seat properly. And you can watch that happen. If you rotate the propeller, you can watch the, the valve open and close and see how it, it, it seats. Moves, and, if it's and straight. I'll, yeah. I'll never forget a video that Mike sent of one of his valves that was wobbling. Now, it only had like 2,800 hours on it, so we're going <laughs> to give it a pass. <clears throat> but he was starting to get some... Uh, almost said EKG, some EGT um, fluctuations. And so he took a borescope down in there, took a video, and he sent it to me. He says, you think I should do something with this? And I mean, it, 
it landed on the side of the seat the, and then dropped into the, it. This was this, these were my self-centering self-centering um, vows. Oh. <laughs> and then it right? shifted over at the last. Yeah, yeah. Kind of they, 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 they dropped into the seat. They they did a little dipsy doodle to the side. You could really it's, see. It was really cool to watch. Yeah. Anyway, and and, yeah. and the engine ran fine. By the way, yeah, it was just. <laughs> okay, so last question, Mike. Initially, you said this is an could if it was a stuck valve, it's an operational issue. Is that mean I'm not leaning enough? Uh, it well, I wouldn't put it precisely that way, but you're running your engine on this awful stuff called hundred low lead that's full of tetraethyl lead, which is just really evil stuff, and tetraethyl lead has a, a tendency to create lead deposits all over various things, including exhaust valve stems, where it can do quite a bit of harm. And the the thing that is supposed to prevent that from happening is, is a process called lead scavenging. There's a lead scavenging agent called ethylene dibromide that's blended in with 100 low lead. But in order for the ethylene dibromide to cause the tetraethyl tetraethyl lead to <laughs> to decompose into a gaseous form where it can simply go out the exhaust and not do any harm uh, it has to ha- be at a fairly high temperature for the lead scavenging to occur so when we see engines develop stuck valves at you know fairly early number of hours it, it typically means that the combustion temperatures haven't been kept high enough a lot of that happens during ground operations where people will not be will not lean aggressively during uh, idle and taxi maybe a long uh, operations taxi. and um and and so the combustion temperatures will be really low and a lot of uh, lead deposits build up during ground operations we want to be lean very very aggressively during during ground operations as soon as the engine gets started uh, we, we want to come back on the red knob at least to best power mixture, which would be maximum RPM. But I, I kind of like to run it even leaner than that on the ground. But generally speaking, that's what, you know, when, when we start to see premature uh, valve sticking in Lycoming's, it's usually because combustion temperatures weren't kept high enough operationally. Okay. That's helpful. I appreciate that. I do lean as much as I can on the ground, but I am out of a pretty busy airport, so I sometimes just get stuck on the ground for a long time which doesn't help so Mm -hmm. well thanks for having me back it was uh, a lot of good helpful information thank you for calling and and especially thank you for the feedback we do like to hear how things work out so appreciate the call good to see you again tamer see you You too bye (laughs) okay well that's a wrap we know a lot more about maintenance than podcasting so we would love to hear from you Please send us your ideas on what you would like us to discuss. Send your questions and comments to podcasts at aopa.org. Fly safely and have fun, and we'll see you next time. See ya. Bye, everybody.